Well, good morning. Can everybody hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to uh, see some faces rather than just a camera screen uh, for the first time in a year uh, when you're trying to talk. Um, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but if you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. That's where we're going to be uh, talking about today. Um, but as you do that, as you're finding your Bible or your iPad or whatever you're doing, you're changing your screen. Uh, I want to begin by telling you a story. Um, so many of you know that uh, I used to race bikes prior to, to this, but a lot of you don't know that I was actually a runner uh, prior to, uh, to, to racing bikes. Um, and I used to run all the time. In fact, if you ask my mom, um, she'll tell you that around nine months old, I just went straight from crawling right to running. I would just stand up and I would like put my head down. I put my hands behind my back. And I would just run across the room until I hit something and then I would get back up and I would just run and run again. Um, by like nine or 10 years old, I was running 10 Ks and actually I won my, I won the under 18 class uh, when I was nine years old in my very first 10 K. Um, so I was like running all the time. Uh, and that's what I did. Actually, the last race I ran was about 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, and it's called the Broad Street Run. It's the it's the largest 10 mile race uh, in the country, about 40,000 people run in it. And uh, about a few of my friends who were big runners talked me into to running with them. And I had not run in many years prior to that, um, but I thought it was a good idea to go out and do it. And so I said, sure, I will go run with you. And uh, so the week before I ran, I, uh, uh, I decided I should go out and run some. And so like I went out and ran twice uh, before that week. And then I just showed up for the race. Um, and if you know anything about larger races, uh, the way that they stage you uh, at the starting line, they just don't put 40,000 people straight across. They, they stretch it back over probably about an eighth of a mile or more. And they, they stage you in that line, depending on where they think you're going to finish. And so all the guys I was running with had won their classes before, uh, the year before. And so I found myself standing in the second row right behind the uh, Olympic gold medalist Kenyan who had set the course record the year before. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm a little bit out of my league here right now. And so we take off running and, you know, you're all hyped up and I go past the first mile and it says five minutes and two seconds. And I'm like, oh, I'm going way too fast. I'm not going to finish at this pace. Uh, and the guy, the Kenyan is already way out of sight. Like I can't even see him already. My mile, like seven or eight, um, I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing running this stupid race? Why am I running this? And the, and the guy who was my buddy who's running beside me, he's like, don't worry, Rocky is coming. And I was like, what are you talking about? Rocky is coming. And as we rounded the corner about mile nine, you could see the stadium and uh, over the loudspeakers, you could hear the theme song from Rocky starting to play, um, the Eye of the Tiger. Now, if you know anything about Philadelphia, the Eye of the Tiger is like Philadelphia's favorite hype song. And so everyone was like, yes. You know, when you get around mile nine, you're like, yes, there is hope. I can get out of this misery. I can finish. Let me go. And so I kind of, I had that feeling as I was running that race. And as I was thinking about that this week, I think that's kind of where we are a little bit in the book of Romans. Um, we know that we're defeated by sin. We feel this grim reality of the pain that we're causing our body with each step that we take every day. And if you've been following along in Romans, you'll see for the last uh, two and a half chapters, we've really been looking at the sad story of, of humans and how our sin leads to this grim reality of God's righteousness and God's righteous wrath and judgment being upon us. 
Uh, and so today, instead of continuing to review this, this sad reality, the book of Romans takes a turn. There's, there's a relief of God's good news and his grace towards sinners in Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles in chapter 3 and verse 21, it, it starts with this, these two words. And, it, and for me, they kind of ring out like the eye of a tiger. Um, these two words in verse 21 says, but now. They say, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. You see, what amazing those two simple words are. You see, if we hadn't studied or understood the first few chapters, I don't think these words would, would be that big of a deal. But you see, we really need the, the first few chapters because most people, I think, don't see themselves as being under condemnation. Because that, that sentence of condemnation uh, hanging over us hasn't really been fully executed yet. People are still alive, they're well, they're, they, they think they're masters of their domain, they think they have the ability to, to control their future, but nonetheless, they're still under condemnation and will eventually perish. I think it's this idea that, that we don't understand the past uh, unless we, or we don't, if we don't understand the past, we can't appreciate the future or the present. The but now here is really this, this great turning point. It's, it's a cry of joy, if you want to say it that way. The, the word now is, is telling us there's been a change. There was something bad that existed in the past, but now that has changed. Paul is saying that, that if, if God hadn't, hadn't done this, the, the future outlook of the human race would have been completely bleak. We, we would all be under wrath with no hope. But now, instead of the wrath, there's righteousness. You see, before the wrath of God um, was being revealed against us, but now the righteousness of God is being made known. We, we had no way of escaping in the past, but now there is a way. It's, these, are, these are super good news of hope. I want to just continue to, to read on it in verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot in these verses, but I think the first thing that I want us to see uh, in verse 21 is this reality that that God is the one who has provided the righteousness of, of his own. It's the idea that, that righteousness is both from God and of God. It's, it's given from God in Jesus, and it's of God because Jesus is God in the flesh. That it's, it's his righteousness, not our righteousness. Now, this is, a, this is an important distinction that we need to realize, you see, because apart from Jesus, we can easily start to compare ourselves with one another and, and arrive at really a completely inadequate idea that, um, of what God actually requires of us. In fact, um, I think this is exactly what Paul had been doing prior um, 
to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, Paul had been comparing himself with people, um, looking at his morality. He's been looking at the morality of others and throwing them in jail. And he, he concluded that he had, he had a lot to boast in. But in Philippians, if you look over at Philippians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse uh, 4, uh, he, he talks about this, and he says this very th this thing. He says, I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's basically saying, I've, I've tried it all. I, I was the most moral person there was. And then he goes on, and he, he lists all of his personal accomplishments. And by the time he gets to verse 8, um, he has compared those with Jesus. And he says this. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's this reality that, that every human is completely and utterly unable to obtain righteousness on their own. If, if God didn't give it, um, there would be no possible way for us to win it ourselves. It's, it's really basically another way of saying salvation is a gift of grace. Verse 21 says it's, it's apart from the law. Verse uh, 24 says we're justified by grace as a gift. Basically meaning righteousness is apart from any human accomplishment and it's completely unearned. Uh, there's a a theologian named John Mary, Murray, uh, he says it this way. He's, he's, he's dead too, just like all Brad's guys. Um, and he says it this way, in justification, there is no contribution, preparatory, accessory, or subsidiary that is given by the works of the law. I want to say this is actually the defining and distinguishing factor that separates true Christianity from every other religion in the world. You see, every other religion has their distinguishing teaching or um, some way that they emphasize one path to God or, or another way to path to God. There, some, are, some are super mystical, some are really rich, uh, ritualistic, that's the right word. Um, but all religions outside of true Christianity believe there's something that humans can do for their God to, to basically to, to convince him to save them. They all teach there's a, there's a human way to achieve eternity from an etern, eternity and a right standing before God. But I say true Christianity because there's, there's also many uh, religions and churches that fall under the Christian umbrella. And they teach that same lie of all the other religions, that humans have certain actions to achieve salvation or achieve righteousness before God. But only true Christianity actually humbles man by insisting that there's nothing at all we can do. There's nothing at all we can do to achieve or make ourselves righteous before God so that God would look at us and approve us. I want to say, if you find yourself in any church or, or any place uh, that even claims Christianity, that, but teaches you that you need to do something to earn God's favor, run away as fast as you can. You see, the good news of salvation is that it is a gift of God apart from any human doing. And the, the good news of that is we can actually be saved now. I sense that most people, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, know that our lives and that our actions are far from what they should be. And so we continue to strive to do good. 
But what this means is that, that salvation can never be a present experience. It always has to be something in the future. It's something that, that we hope for, that we hope to attain, and we're afraid that we may not at some point. But in Christianity, we don't have to wait to reach some higher level or pass some undetermined future test. If the gift of salvation is, God, if, is, is of God and it's apart from us accumulating some acceptable merits on our behalf, and it's based on only what God has already done, that moves the future element into the present. It means that, that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he meant what he said. He said it's finished. The sole work of us being declared righteous by God has been done. And since that was in the past, then since that was in the past, our salvation now can be ours in the, in the present. We get to live in the present with a hope and with a freedom to live in God's ways without the need to achieve anything. You see, if salvation is a gift from God apart from any human doing, then we can be saved now. It also means that our salvation is actually certain. It's, it's really a simple concept that if, if salvation is, is in human works or in human actions and, or, or the lack of them, then we can undo it. If I can save myself in some way, then, then I must certainly be able to unsave myself in another way. I can override all the good years of my acts by one simple failure. But if God is the one who's giving unmerited salvation, and he knows the beginning from the end, then salvation is certain right now. You see, nothing ever surprises him because he's already seen it. He knows the beginning and the end. He's not like, oh, man, I... I didn't think Johnny would make that stupid decision over there or make that bad choice. Why, why did I give him salvation? No, he's not surprised because he knows the past. He knows the future and it never alters his plans or never changes his mind. You see, if God is the one who, who gives salvation, we now get to have confidence that what he began, he will actually accomplish in us. And no act of ours or no act of any other human can undo his work. And the good news of all of that is that when salvation is actually of God and from God, he is the one who gets the glory, not us. Have you ever been around uh, someone who, who likes to continually like talk about themselves or, or, or one-ups everyone in the room that someone tells a story and then they, they tell another story to make themselves feel better? You don't usually like hanging out with them, right? You're like, all right, I'm going to go hang out over here in the party. Well, when we used to have parties. Um, can you imagine a heaven populated with people who have earned their way there? What horrific place that would be. Self-righteousness is bad enough down here. Can you imagine self-righteousness that you've earned your way to heaven? But the good news is heaven is not going to be like that at all. Because not only Romans says this, but Ephesians says that salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. No one will be praising themselves or any other person for getting into heaven. In heaven, all the glory will go to its proper place, God alone. Because it's God's righteousness, and it's of God, and it's from God alone. Because of that, we get to have certainty that we get to have salvation right now in the present and in the future, and he gets to receive the glory. I think a second thing uh, that these verses make clear is that the work of Jesus 
dying for his people is what makes grace possible. It's, it's the reason for the now and in the but now. It's all because of Jesus. If you take, take a look at verse, what, verse 23 and 24. 23 says, for this is a very familiar verse, I'm sure. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus who is the one who is justified and gives grace. He's the one who's made grace possible. I think when you think about grace, people often define grace as, as unmerited favor. But, but that definition actually stops short. Grace is unmerited favor when we deserve the complete opposite. It's, it's basically kindness shown to someone who is un, utterly undeserving. There's a, there's a Welsh theologian named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he puts it this way. He says, there's no more wonderful word than grace. It's not merely a free gift but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. And it was given to us while we were without hope and without God in the world. You see, I think this, this idea or the word of grace in, in some ways has, has lost some depth in our society and, and even in Christian circles. Uh, a few months back, I was helping Adam on this uh, music video and the director came to me and he, he asked me if I was okay with grace. And I was like, I don't know what he's asking, but of course I'm okay with grace. And, and so he, he walked away and, and not knowing what I just agreed to, I went and found Adam and I was like, hey, uh, he just asked if I was okay with grace. And, and after Adam like stopped laughing for a little bit that someone would ask the pastor if he was okay with grace, um, he informed me that, that it means that they could film 12 more minutes into, into our lunchtime. You see, this, this idea, uh, this definition of grace, I think, has been, been so dumbed down. It's become all kinds of things. Like, like even the other day, one of my kids was in the hot tub, and they asked me if I could go get them a milkshake. And that was like, I could graciously go get them a milkshake. Or, or grace is, is sometimes that we present... Like if we give someone a present or if we help someone move, we're showing them grace. I, I sense even as we sing amazing grace, I wonder if, we're, if it's not that amazing to us. I wonder if we even consider ourselves wretched in need of salvation when we sing that song. Yeah, we, we may need some grace, but, but not as much grace as the guy down the street. We feel sorry for others. Who, who are in that, and, and we don't think about ourselves in the same condition as needing of grace. Sometimes I think that we didn't think God needed as much grace to save us as someone else. Sure, we needed some grace, but we suppose we're good at least enough to pay a small down payment. Because deep down inside, we consider that our situation, that our lives is not that desperate. But if you've listened to and you've read the first few chapters of Romans, you should realize by now that spiritually there is no difference between us and the most despicable person you can think of in all of history. Because the truth is, if you want to be saved by God, you must understand grace. And you must understand grace on the basis of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. That the utter ruin of sin has completely run rampant in all areas of your life. And you must understand that you have no merit on yourself. I, I, th I think I wonder sometimes if, if this numbness to grace 
uh, really comes from living in a world where, where common grace exists. Common grace is, is basically a theological term to describe the way of, of God's non-saving grace experienced throughout the world. And in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 45, Jesus describes it this way when he, he says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. It's this idea that whether you acknowledge God or not, we're and if you're, if you're still living on this planet, you are a recipient of God's common grace. It's the fact that, that he holds the planets aligned, that he, that he keeps the ocean on its shores, that, that gives you breath, that you have actually have food to eat, that you have clothing to wear, that you have somewhere to sleep, whatever it is, the list goes on and on, makes you a recipient of God's common grace because you're actually alive right now. If you're listening, if you're on the Zoom call or if you're watching this later on, you are alive because God's common grace. I sense that the problem is we've, we've lived in this, this common grace so long that we don't even see it as grace anymore. In ignorance, we, the things that we think we possess uh, are blessings or merits on our own. When the reality is that when humans sinned and we came under judgment, no one deserved anything good. Nothing. God would have been good and, and, and just in just casting us immediately into hell. God does not owe any of us anything. And because we have lived in sin and, and so much common grace, I think we just discard grace and we cheapen it as part of life, as something we're owed or something that we had to do with. But common grace is, is not exactly what Paul's referring to in our text. He's discussing specific saving grace of salvation. That is not common. Meaning that, that not every person experiences it. Rather, it's a special gift that's received through faith in Jesus apart from any personal merit. It's a gift that we didn't deserve. Or otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Paul basically repeating the same thing over and over and over again in this section. He's saying the righteousness of God is from God and of God and apart from works. He's saying God is the source of righteousness and it's apart from works. He's saying redemption, which makes grace possible, is apart from works. Justification is apart from works. In other words, all these things, it's all free. It's all free. He repeats it so many times, I think, because deep down, humans resent the fact or even the thought of grace. We, we resent the suggestion that we're, we're unable in some ways to scale the, the walls of heaven on our own. And we must be humbled before we can even give an ear to the sounds of grace or the idea of grace. All right, think about it this way. You, I don't like someone to, to give me something often. Like I'm, I have a hard time receiving grace myself or receiving some help from someone else because I, I want to do it. I want to earn it. But I think when we actually hear, we actually understand grace. We actually understand the free gift of grace. It's amazing news to us. And it's great comfort to us because it's realized in the redemption of Jesus. This word redemption, uh, the Bible actually has three Three Greek words for redemption, and the first one comes from a noun uh, that's used to describe an open marketplace. Uh, maybe a marketplace that's similar to, to our, our farmer markets or our flea market, where you can go and you can buy 
all kinds of things. In, in Paul's day, uh, it was a place to buy household items. It was a place to buy food. You could buy livestock. You could buy jewelry, pottery. And you could even buy slaves in this marketplace. This, this word for redemption suggests the imagery that Jesus' saving work involved him walking into the world's marketplace, searching through all the different vendors to find you and me on the slave block and purchasing you and me for himself. The second uh, Greek word for redemption is actually related to the first, but it's a, it's a prefix that means to buy out of the marketplace. It's this idea that the object or the person that was purchased will never have to return to the marketplace again. That when Jesus paid the price of our redemption with his blood, the price of our redemption is, is unescapable. We, we never have to be enslaved to sin again. And we never have to return to the world's marketplace. The final Greek word for redemption is actually, it's actually a group of words that, that comes from the root word yo. And, and it means to loosen or to set free. It's this idea of, of paying the ransom for a prisoner that signifies the loosening of its bonds and, and, and actually freeing him. It's a picture of Jesus walking behind us and, and untying our chains and, and loosening our feet out of the shackles and carrying us on his shoulders out of the prison. You see, our bondage to sin is great. It was immense. But Jesus' redemption is greater. Jesus is your ransomer, and he shed his own blood to pay the price for your and my ransom. Your salvation has been paid by the tremendous price of the blood of the holy God who shed his blood on the cross and now becomes your God. The just has become the justifier. Jesus' death and resurrection has purchased grace for you. In, in Jesus, you are no longer have to return to the marketplace of this world. You have been loosened by your chains. You were born in, in this desperate reality of sin, but now grace, but now redemption, but now righteousness, but now you are justified, not on your own doing, it is a complete work of God. Please know the most important thing is, is not whether you understand that or whether you know that God has changed history, but what's important is whether the change that Paul speaks about here is actually a reality for you in your life. Can you look at your life and say, I was that person described in the first few chapters. I'm aware of my failures, but Jesus has come and now I am changed because he has saved me and he has made me a new creation. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection as my only hope. And that has changed everything in my life. Salvation is now mine. It is present. And what good news that is to me. That is the only thing that is actually important in this world. And if you don't understand that, if you don't know the reality of that grace, please talk to someone about it. Please talk to someone you're watching with right now or you see on this call, or if you're watching this later, hit me up. Hit me, there are my email's on the website, my phone's on the website. I'm happy to come talk to you in person or online, whatever it is. Need to know the truth 
of your desperate situation and the grace that God has bestowed on us, that it is all him that we get to walk in in a new life. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that, that your grace through Jesus has been made real, that you have provided a way for us to get out of the world's marketplace, that we get to now live in a present reality of your salvation each day. Father, we are so thankful that the but now has happened because we were in a place of no hope. We are so thankful for Jesus, for his death, and for his resurrection that we get to now walk in a new life, a life full of resurrection power in the everyday because you have bestowed your grace upon us. Father, we thank you for the free gift of salvation sent through Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're going to Sarah again uh, right now. Cool. Thank you, Trip. And um, I wanted to like, as we're all together, when you like reset the definition of like in a more specific way of like, amen, like, yeah, it's when I think I've also been convicted lately of like my concept of like cheap grace. I, I used it when I was like an educator and a leader of schools. I'm like, made it our norms of like, let's have grace for each other, but it doesn't totally fulfill the extent of like when we deserve the opposite. And so I think the beautiful thing and what we get to celebrate is we did deserve the opposite, but that Jesus did it in our place through his death and resurrection. And we get to celebrate that now. And also just, I was reading this morning, a book about like the way of Jesus and his practices. And it's not only we follow his teachings, but like to follow what he did. And he actually participated in communion and participated in that celebration and in that ritual. So I'm going to read from Matthew 26, and this is when Jesus kind of like the first time before his death was actually participating in this like communion ritual. So while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This was even before all of it, right? That he knew that everything was going to be forgiven, not on our own merit, but because of him. And so I wanted, um, and as we start kind of building our stamina and re-rhythmizing as a church, I don't know if that's a word, I just made that up, um, that if we could just take a couple minutes with your little Zoom pod and you can take the elements together like we used to do together and just also pray and pray and sit in that reality of like, whoa, I'm a sinner. <laughs> but also in the celebration of amen, like it is forgiven. It was accomplished on the cross. So I'll give us a couple minutes just to eat and take the elements together and pray and I'll close us off um, with prayer. So please pray with your little pod around you and we'll join together in a couple minutes. 